Hi, this is Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today for our teleconference series. Today's topic is consular processing of H-1 and L-1 visas and the employment-based immigrant uh, visa options. I have with me two amazing, smart, brilliant lawyers from the Murthy Law Firm. Uh, well, the first one, attorney Korzad Mehta from the H-1B department, has five-plus years of experience doing non-immigrant options, uh, great experience with IT consulting companies, technology companies, physicians, hospitals, doctors, and the works. I also have with me Pam Janice, um, who is in charge of the green card or immigrant department at the Murthy Law Firm, also had some wonderful experience uh, with the Washington, D.C. law firms, but has been with us a few years now, very critical people within our team. Um, today's uh, teleconference deals with H-1B, L-1, and other immigrant options, as we mentioned earlier, but a lot of the information for today's teleconference has also been provided with uh, the help of the Murthy India Group, Murthy Immigration Services Private Limited, by Senthil Kumar, attorney there, along with his other attorneys, who have given us some valuable insight and guidance on the sorts of questions and the kinds of problems they routinely are asked to help out and guide both individuals and companies, families and businesses who are stuck with different visa problems at the U.S. consulates in India and in other parts of the world as well. They actually uh, will do personalized service and mock interviews for people, and they really prepare family members and businesses on how to respond and deal with visa problems and visa issues. So, Korzad, let me start with you, since we want to start with the non-immigrant or H-1B options. What is the one most important piece of advice you would give to somebody if somebody comes and says, I have an interview tomorrow, I don't have much time, I can't do anything, I can't discuss a lot, but where do I go and what do I get started and I need to be prepared for my interview tomorrow? Thanks, Sheila. My number one bit of advice, uh, bit of advice would be to very, very closely and comprehensively check the webpage of the specific consulate that the individual is planning to visit. Each consulate has slightly different requirements and different procedures and different documentary uh, preferences. Uh, they also have differing methods of collecting uh, fees and also uh, scheduling of visa interviews. So it is vitally important that visa applicants take a very, very close look at each at the, at the webpage relating to non-immigrant visa applications for the particular consulate they are planning to visit. Okay. And what's your feel about the whole issue of home country versus third country consulates, because I'm always asked this question during consultations otherwise. Why can't I just go to Canada or Mexico? Why should I fly back to India or to China or to Mexico, you know, or to, to, to Australia? Why can't I just go across and just drive for a couple hours and, and pick up my visa from Canada or Mexico? Sure. I, you know, Sheila, differing, um, differing attorneys have different opinions on this, uh, on this matter. The base difference is that a home country that is a consulate located in a country of citizenship of an applicant is required to review the visa application by nationals of that country. While um, if consulates in countries uh, which are not uh, the home country of a visa applicant have an option as to whether they want to review that visa application or shift it over to the home country. Um, and also, different third countries have different rules. For example, 
Mexico will only accept visa applications from applicants who are seeking to renew their non-immigrant visa, and then they will only accept it if the initial visa was issued either in the applicant's home country or at one of the U.S. consulates in Mexico or Canada. So, you know, my, and, you know, different attorneys have different opinions. My opinion is that an individual should go where they feel most comfortable. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, it's a case-by-case determination. Okay, well, that's very helpful. I always tell people that we're considered TCNs or third-country nationals in a consular post other than the one in which you hold a passport. And so it's always that level of risk. And also with the new policy of sending the person back, uh, the person no longer being able to re-enter the United States but being forced to fly from Canada or Mexico right back to their home country in case the visa stamp is denied at the consular post in Canada or Mexico is another huge risk that they need to be prepared for mentally and financially because a short you know, ticket bought at the 11th hour from Canada or Mexico can end up becoming really expensive. Okay, let's get to the heart of why people are really, really scared and nervous about visa issuances, especially because there are so many issues for ID consulting companies. Now, we're finding that one of the most common problems are the problems with the end client letter or the end uh, client contract. How important is it for the petitioner who's a consulting company to actually provide that in the IT consulting company context, Corza? In short, Sheila, it's vitally important. Um, a consulate cannot determine um, the bona fide nature of a particular job opportunity in an IT consulting context uh, in the normal course of business typically because of, the, um, because of the possibility of many entities between the employer and the ultimate location of employment. So a letter from the, uh, from the entity that controls the ultimate location of employment, typically known as the end client letter, is tremendously valuable and vital. Okay, so, so when comp- a person says, I can't get it for you, it's impossible, or it's going to be very, very difficult, are you just going to say, then pack your bags, there's no way this is going to get approved? Oh, no, of course not, Sheila. I mean, we really want to um, try to put visa applicants in the, best way po- in the best position possible, and we will, of course, advise and guide our clients to, uh, as to what additional documentation uh, in lieu of an end client letter, uh, secondary evidence, could establish the link between the actual employer and the end client location to the satisfaction of a consular officer. Like mid-vendor letters and other Mid-vendor letters, potentially uh, ID cards uh, for the end client location, timesheets between um, the end client, uh, to the end client and the, um, and the mid-vendor or preferred vendor in many cases, even sometimes uh, invoices, statements of work, and uh, contracts that just lay out that link between the petitioner and the uh, actual and location. Do, and by providing the secondary evidence, do most of the cases end up getting approved? Uh, we've had a lot of success with it, mm-hmm. um, you know, but we put, put together a very, very comprehensive packet with uh, tremendous amounts of citation and uh, description in the law and regulations. But uh, when you say citations, you mean like legal citations? Yes, yes. Actually, pointing out where in the law um, the uh, support for a particular position is located. Okay, wonderful. And I think the point that we're trying to drive is what we've all been seeing, and I'm sure what all of you have also been noticing, is the denials or the RFEs or the notice of intentions to deny extensive lengthy RFEs, denying H-1B petitions, and also visa stamps at consulates abroad, as we're seeing, based on not having the appropriate documentation 
information and good thorough legal preparation, legal work, citations of the law, citations of the regulations, um, trying to show the government why a particular document cannot or should not be requested or if it should be, can be requested, what other alternative backup secondary evidence may work can be critical. And this piece of evidence can be critical in making a difference between an approval and a denial. Um, Okay, now there have been tons of benching issues for some employees, and will this cause problems during the visa applications? Unfortunately, Sheila, yes. Prior histories of benching of uh, critical employees who are H-1B non-immigrants can be an issue at the consulate. Uh, if the applicant is working with an employer who's previously benched, the office on uh, other employees, uh, the officer may presume that the employee uh, may not be paid in accordance with the regulations, the required wage. Um, and uh, if the employer has been paying the applicant the required wage in the, uh, in the recent eight to 10 months, it is possible the visa may be issued because it shows a record of, uh, of payment of the required wage, but that's not necessarily a guarantee. Uh, if a beneficiary himself has had benching issues with previous employers, then the past benching generally does not affect it. So if you're benched with a previous employer, you're going for a new visa with a new employer, the fact that you were benched with a previous employer may not, uh, may, uh, generally does not affect visa issuance if the present employer has been paying the required wage as stated in the LC. Okay, okay, and that could be the reason saying that's why I'm quitting that job because they were, didn't Absolutely. comply with the law. What about, how is the whole PIMS verification, and could you explain where that stands? Sure, the Petition Immigration, ma uh, sorry, the Petition Information Management System, also known as PIMS, came about a, a couple of years ago, and it's a grand database between the USCIS and the Department of State that holds uh, information about petitions that have been approved by the USCIS for, uh, for consular uh, processing in the future. It's housed at the Kentucky Consular Center. Um, though initially there were many reported delays for, uh, uh, for visa issuance due to PIMS issues, uh, failure of the PIMS database to update. Typically, we've been seeing that the, uh, d that the consular uh, offices uh, across the world are uh, doing the needed checks even before the individual shows up at the uh, visa issuance interview. And if it has not been completed uh, at prior to the visa uh, issuance interview, then typically within seven to ten days after, business days after the visa interview, uh, as long as all other eligibility criteria are met, uh, the visa should be issued. Okay. Now, a lot of people, when they get uh, go to the visa appointment, they get this little blue sheet which says 221G, administrative processing. Uh, what does it mean? How long does it take? And how can the employer and employee deal with, respond to it? Sure. A 221G letter, either pink or blue or yellow, uh, depending, like I said, different consulates have different procedures. So sometimes at some consulates, the colors mean something. But in the context that we're talking about right now, a simple 221G letter based, uh, it, it, it refer, is issued by a consular officer to a visa applicant to notify them of a particular deficiency or, or, uh, or um, some missing information that prohibits them from issuing the visa to them or recommending issuance of the visa to the applicant at that time. Um, in in the most common context that uh, people see when they're applying for visas, H-1B uh, visas, and they come from a IT consulting background, typically that letter is requesting evidence of the uh, placement uh, at the end client, um, some biographical history of the uh, employer to ensure that they're a bona fide employer. Um, the best thing to do to minimize delays as much as possible in, if there is a uh, 221G that's been issued is to go to the visa interview with 
all the possible documentation that could be uh, requested by a consular officer. Most um, experienced practitioners like us have, a, have an understanding and a view as to what those documents might be, and, w and we can ensure that they have it with them at the time. Um, if, the, if a 221G letter is issued, that letter typically also contains instructions as to how to answer the uh, RF, uh, the uh, 221G and, and satisfy the uh, consular officer's concerns. Uh, the best thing to do in most Indian consulates, that, or most consulates located, U.S. consulates located in India, that involves submitting the required documentation to VFS, which is the contracted courier between consulates in India, U.S. consulates in India and uh, visa applicants. Uh, what would be an ideal situation is if you get a 221G letter, you leave the consulate and uh, go straight to a VFS office and provide all the documentation that you already have with you. Okay, okay. What about... Uh, if, an, if a company, a consulting company, or any company for that matter, has paid all of the back wages for their employees who were previously benched, could this cause a problem at the visa interview? Um, there's, a, there's an adage out there, and it is that an ounce of prevention is worth a, um, worth a uh, truckload of cure. I might have butchered that. But anyway, um, the, uh, my, my advice in such a situation is to have all documentation relating to a potential issue with you ready to go to satisfy any consular officer's query. Um, it's not necessary to actively volunteer and provide that information without a consular officer requesting it. However, uh, having it with you can give you that one bit uh, of greater security so that when you are answering the consular officer's questions, you can answer with security and confidence. Okay. What about this common scenario where a lot of H-1B extensions for consulting companies and other companies are being denied routinely? And obviously then the, because the process takes so long, um, the I-94 card or the earlier H-1 status has now expired. So the individual obtains the denial notice and by, from the time they deny, obtain the denial notice, it takes sometimes a few days, sometimes a few weeks to get the airline tickets, wrap up, sell their home, I don't know, get rid of their lease, car assets, whatever. They can't just pack up and leave if they're worried about coming back. Um, but then they're able to file and obtain a new H-1 petition approval. Uh, will this cause any complications? What should the candidate or the company be doing in such a situation? Well, Sheila, um, and any overstay or a, of a period of authorized stay as listed in I-94 is considered a violation of status or, you know, basically being deemed out of status. Uh, unfortunately, and, I, you know, I discuss this with clients on a routine basis, there is no grace period after an H-1B visa, uh, after V-H-1B classification has, has expired as listed on an I-94. Uh, for individuals who have violated stay or overstayed um, and are now applying for a visa at a consulate, uh, prudent advice is for them to honestly, truthfully answer the relevant question on the DS-156 yes. The relevant question being, have you ever violated the terms of the U.S. visa or ha have, have you been unlawfully present in or deported from the United States? Um, answering, that answer, uh, answering that question yes 
in a, um, in a visa application for an H-1B context is typically not an, a deemed an automatic ineligibility for the H-1B visa classification. Why? Because the H-1B visa classification um, uh, benefits from the doctrine of dual intent and previous uh, immigration violations, even though they may show a lack of, um, a, a, a lack of non-immigrant intent, really don't apply when you're applying for an H-1B visa. Uh, however, one must be very, very cognizant of how much time an individual has spent beyond the expiration of an I-94, because, uh, because depending on how much time has been spent before departure in violation of status, uh, there could be bars to readmission to the United States, which are triggered upon departure. So, so for it's the 180-day mark? Yes, yes. Okay. Okay, now tell me this whole thing. I mean, we hear this from time to time, something about my, my case was stuck in a security for a security advisory opinion. Uh, you know, I've done my master's in chemical engineering or I've done my master's in biotechnology, whatever. Why am I being stuck but all my other colleagues who came, got their visas right away? Uh, can you explain a little bit about what that is? Because there's this whole thing about technology alertless, sensitive technology. I'm happy to, Sheila. Um, if an employer or a visa applicant is or was or is currently involved or associated in sensitive projects, those are ones that have a governmental or federal type of application, um, they're listed in a technology alert list. Uh, and one may expect additional scrutiny in the, in, the, um, in the form of a security advisory opinion. This is where a consular officer will will um, will del will suspend the processing of a visa application uh, a, a visa issuance until uh, agencies in the United States clear the uh, either the applicant or the employer uh, and their and their security um, and, and their security ramifications are fully uh, understood by the consular officer and then only then will they issue the H the visa okay and uh, in any of these cases is there any issue dealing with the Department of Commerce, any kind of a license, is that the same, or is that a different issue? The export deemed export license. There are different types of security of security checks. Um, you know, one may have heard about visas Mantis, visas Bear, visas Condor. Um, so my understanding is that these different checks cover the different uh, types of uh, advisory opinions that the U.S. Department of State may need to request. Okay. Um, what about the H four or L two? Uh, person who was previously on H4 or L2 and then changed status to H1B but has not started work. Um, will this pose a problem? Was there an uh, issue? Pot potentially. Um, as, as we all know, an H1B petition is approved with a specific start date and a specific end date. And when an employer is filing that petition, they are in effect telling the USCIS that they that they are uh, anticipating a need for an employer as of a certain date. If a tremendous, if a, if a large enough amount of time passes between the um, commencement of the validity of that petition and uh, whenever the uh, employer, is, uh, whenever the employee is seeking a visa to come into the United States, and the employee has not worked for the employer in the interim time. Questions may arise in the minds of a consular officer as to the bona fides of that petition. Okay. Okay. And um, just a one or two quick questions before we have Pam speak a little bit about the immigrant uh, visa uh, process is if the visa H1 or L1 visa is denied, does the petition itself get revoked or canceled in any way? 
No. Um, as we know, uh, visa applications are, and visa issuance is governed by the U.S. Department of State. And the U.S. Department of State does not have jurisdiction over the approval or denial or even ultimate revocation of, uh, of H-1B or L petitions. Um, however, a consulate, depending on the type of information that they receive during the visa a- application uh, interview, can recommend to the USCIS that a petition be uh, revoked. Uh, and uh, once a, the U- and you know the, the, this, this petition is sent via um, governmental mail or diplomatic pouch to the uh, USCIS, and then the USCIS, in the ordinary course of its business, will con- will uh, ask for additional information uh, to determine whether the uh, petition should be revoked based on the consular officer's findings, or whether the consular officer's findings are erroneous and are overcome by a petitioner's additional evidence, and that the petition should remain approved. Okay. And okay. Valid. So until they issue the notice of intention to revoke or the revocation, it still it remains still, valid. The yes. person can go back yes. or file an amendment, do all kinds of cool things. And strategizing with your lawyer can be very uh, a critical part of how to try to overcome some of these problems. Um, okay. So what if there's a discrepancy between the wages or the salary that's paid and the wage that's listed on the LCA? Yes, Sheila. This is also a potential problem, and the and an embassy officer or consular officer could request additional uh, information about this simply because um, a discrepancy in the uh, required va- wage versus the wage that has actually been paid and is uh, reflected on the W-2 uh, could tend to draw a question about a employer and an employee's general um, compliance with the applicable H-1B and Department of Labor regulations. Okay. Let me briefly touch uh, upon just the L-1 uh, issues, um, sim- very similar to what Korza just explained about the H-1. Um, we have same similar kinds of issues with the L-1B where the consular officers will question the applicant's knowledge, uh, but instead of in general, this time they will question it about the products or the services between the foreign company and the U.S. company. Also, the consular officers will ascertain the actual work location, the people who exercise control over the work, and the duties of the L-1B applicant. If some of you will remember from four or five years ago, there was a big hue and cry um, where Congress made it much more strict if the person was not actually working at a facility of the company but at client sites, it would be scrutinized far more in much greater detail because they wanted to make sure that the direct supervision was done by an empl- by a supervisor within the company rather than an outside end client. In the L1A context, for senior executives or managers, as different from the specialized knowledge workers who are L1B applicants, for the L1A applicants, the consular officers look into the experience of the applicant and the proposed position in the U.S. Of course, the minimum one-year experience abroad is required for both L1A and L1B. And in both instances, the applicant's role, the current position, the job duties, both in the U.S. and abroad, uh, the proposed position here in the U.S., and the petitioner's ability and presence, ability to pay, and even salaries taken into account. Although there's no minimum prevailing wage, if you say somebody is a senior executive or manager running a huge operation and you're paying them like $25,000 a year, it look really suspicious because how come you want this person to supervise millions and millions of dollars worth of operations or, you know, dozens or hundreds of employees and not get paid a fairly decent 
salary. And so even though there's not the same kind of prevailing wage issues as the H-1, there is a rule of reasonableness and a reasonable standard that you always need to keep in mind, that we all need to keep in mind, uh, both when drafting the petitions and when applying for the visa stamp at the consulate. Uh, Because of the time constraints, I'm going to have Pamela... Uh, discuss the employment-based immigrant visa options. So, Pam, can you give us a quick overview of what it is and why somebody would choose, like, an immigrant visa option as opposed to maybe just doing maybe a consular and adjustment of status in the United States? Sure. The primary differences between the consular processing um, with an immigrant visa versus the non-immigrant visa scenarios that Corazad was discussing is there are a lot more steps. It's definitely more complicated um, when you're comparing non-immigrant visas and and, uh, immigrant visas. As part of the I-140 immigrant petition, one generally indicates whether you're going to be pursuing consular processing or adjustment of status. Consular processing meaning you're going to receive your immigrant visa through a consulate abroad and enter as a permanent resident versus adjustment of status where you are inside the United States and you're applying to essentially change from a non-immigrant to a lawful permanent resident. And there are a couple different factors that you may look at in deciding whether you want to do consular processing versus adjustment of status. If you are believing that you may be outside the United States for an extended period of time, it may make sense for you to go to pursue consular processing. If you are thinking that there's going to be a lot of uncertainty in terms of your priority date movement, it may say it makes sense to uh, pursue adjustment of status so that you can continue working uninterrupted in the United States. So it's a very case-by-case determine, specific determination, and it's a good idea to discuss it with your attorney during the I-140 immigrant petition because, as I said, you're going to indicate as part of that petition which way you want to pursue. Now, If you indicate on the I-140 that you're going to go through consular processing, upon approval, the case will be transferred to the National Visa Center. And if the priority date is current, then they will issue a fee bill to the attorney or the petitioner. If the priority date is far off, then most likely they will just issue the case number and wait to issue the fee bill until the priority date becomes closer. But once the fee bill is issued and is paid, then they issue a document list that needs to be submitted to the National Visa Center. And all supporting documents, both forms, the DS-230 Part 1 and Part 2, must be submitted, including all supporting documents, including birth documents, marriage documents, police certificates. All of that must be submitted to the National Visa Center before they can make a determination that the person is qualified and then schedule the case for an interview at the consulate once the priority date becomes current. Okay. If the person didn't file um, requesting consular processing, if they just indicated they were going to be doing adjustment status, and then they say that they changed their mind, they have to undergo an additional step of filing an IA-24 form in order to change to a consular processing case, at which point they'll then go through the same process. Okay, but if I'm either the employer or the applicant, do I really care about any of these processes? And what I mean by that is, is it, okay, it goes on all in the background, it's good, somebody will tell me what's happening, I just need to keep providing the accurate information, my birth certificate, my marriage certificates, my, you know, whatever documents they request of me, uh, rather than anything else. So the real issue, I guess, if I'm the applicant or the employee, 
my concern is the interview process. What happens at the interview and what do I need to prepare and is it, you know, scary or is it something that's fairly straightforward? Well, just like with the non-immigrant visa, going through the interview is all a matter of having all of your documents prepared ahead of time, being prepared to answer questions about the position, the nature of the company, the job duties that you'll be performing, or the job duties that you're currently performing. It's a really good opportunity to make sure that you're fully prepared ahead of time. Uh, We hear a lot of positive feedback from people who go through having mock interviews ahead of time. And I know that that's something that Santhal Kumar at Murthy Immigration Services in India offers. And that's something that we help people who are going through the adjustment status process here in the United States. It's always a good idea to prepare for that situation since you never know how you're going to respond when an officer is asking you those detailed questions. And just to make it clear, a lot of people ask how to get in touch, and it's really easy email. It's, uh, the website is murthyindia.com, and it's info at murthyindia or just murthyindia.com, and Senthil or one of the other attorneys will actually guide, your, guide the company or the individual. As far as the documents that you need to bring, you definitely need to bring um, evidence of the job offer. Um, it should be an, an original employment letter from that company, And you should be prepared to describe in detail what that company is doing and the job duties that are involved. For IT consultants, there isn't the same need for an end client letter because their job is not absolutely absolutely connected to that. In some cases, it may be that it's asked, especially if the company... Um, doesn't have any in-house work. They only have people at client sites. But for the most part, a client letter, end client letter is not required for um, the, the immigrant case the way it is for a non-immigrant case. Okay. Um, because we're always cognizant of time considerations, and we always like to be between the 30 to 45 minutes or so, 40 minutes, and I think we're doing pretty good so far. We have a few more minutes. I just want to... Um, sort of point out that what, what both Korzad and Pam have uh, specifically mentioned or alluded to, which is one can never be over-prepared with a visa interview, whether it's a non-immigrant interview or an immigrant interview. The way the candidate dresses, the way they speak, the way they appear confident or nervous or scared, the way they look at the eye of the consular officer, the way they smile at the person, the way they don't smile at the person, um, all of those are taken into account. I always uh, tell people, think of yourself as the consular officer. It will make it a little bit easier for you. Think of hundreds and hundreds of people coming in, all looking nervous and scared, all not smiling at you. What a horrible day it would be for you if you had to do hundreds of cases every day, which is their life that most of the consular officers have to deal with. So make their life a little bit easier. You know, Dress professionally, arrange all the documents in order, number them, file them, have your lawyer help you, guide you. No Know what's in each of the documents you're submitting because when they ask you questions about job duties, etc., you better know and understand exactly what it is you're doing for the company at which work location. And smile. Smile at them at every possible appropriate opportunity. Don't smile when they ask you a serious question or if something horrible happened that day, um, you know, like an accident. But smile at the appropriate event. Say good morning, good afternoon. Be cordial. Be professional. Uh, we at the Murthy Law Firm, both here in the U.S., and particularly with Murthy Immigration Services Private Limited, which both Pam and Korzad had mentioned, um, 
can really give hand-holding guidance in terms of how to interact, how to try and avoid uh, problems. And God forbid there is the blue, dreaded blue sheet with the 221G or any of the other problems or a threat of a revocation. Uh, discuss it with your lawyer. If you don't have a lawyer or don't feel comfortable, certainly you're welcome to come to, a, to us here at the Murthy Law Firm. We've obviously dealt with hundreds or thousands of situations and cases and tried to uh, fight and overcome a lot of difficult, difficult uh, case uh, denials that come to us. Unfortunately, people come after the RFE or the notice of intention is, has been issued working with some other lawyer in most cases. Um, the 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 Amuthi India office actually provides a lot of valuable service at a very inexpensive and cost-effective rate, and provides spends a lot more time by providing a lot of detailed guidance to both companies and to individuals about the process. A lot of people whose parents are, for example, denied visas or also uh, multiple denials, three, four, five denials, also end up talking to them in great detail. And particularly for H1 and L1 employees, their family members or business company owners, their parents, those kinds of situations, as well as, of course, the HSLs and immigrant visa options. Um, you know, in closing, we definitely want to share with you that we're always honored to um, help you, your company, your business, your employees to obtain the visas. Uh, there are lots of valuable articles also on the Muthi.com um, website uh, that may guide and help you and the list of documents. As Korzad mentioned initially, um, we need to uh, make sure that... Um, that, that they carry all of the appropriate information and documents for the consular interview. I did forget one very important point right up front that I'm going to mention again, which is all of our materials and all of our teleconferences are copyrighted materials and information of the Murthy Law Firm. No recording or other duplication is allowed without the prior written consent of the Murthy Law Firm. If you've recorded today's series, you are in violation of the law, and I re uh, respectfully request you not to disseminate it and to destroy it uh, because it is a violation, and that is with every single teleconference that we have. We really appreciate your cooperation. We look forward to working with you, and thank you so much for taking time in the middle of the day to participate in the wonderful Murthy Law Firm conference, uh, teleconference series. And thank you to both Pam and Korzad and for each of you to attending. Thank you. Bye-bye.